A major influence in the artistic career of Tom Rodriguez appeared when he was just 14 years old, when he earned an apprenticeship at a stained glass studio near his home. Over the next few decades, his path wove through illustration projects, designer and production manager for George Lucas Skywalker Ranch Studio, a conceptual art show at Candlestick Park, and ultimately a winemaker in Northern California. His journey as an artist from a Portuguese fruit farming family in Los Gatos, California, to the Mendocino wine country where he resides today is the topic for today's Nimble Photographer podcast. Thanks for joining us. One of the themes of this show is that we never really end up where we think we're going to be uh, when we're young. So you got into illustration. One of the forms that that took was designing wine labels. How does one get into the world of designing wine labels? And, I, you know, what was the satisfaction of that for you, uh, you know, during your arc as an artist? I, was, I met a guy by the name of Gil Nickel. Uh, he was from Oklahoma, and he had moved to San Francisco and had, was friends of a, um, a, a client of mine who I did, had done some work for, and stained glass work. And he had bought a home on Leavenworth, old Victorian home, and he wanted to do some, have some glass work done for his home. So he invited me over, and, and I did a huge 15,000-piece mosaic, sort of a Maxfield Parish landscape image. I did that for him, and then he came to my studio one day, and I was had some other label work that I'd done for some cannabis farmers way back when. And uh, he said, oh, what's that? And I said, oh, it's a vegetable label. And he goes, oh, that doesn't look like vegetables to me. <laughs> and now that it's le legal, I can talk about it. That was the inspiration, and, and Gil had wanted to make some wine, and he was making some wine in his basement in, in, on, in, in Nob, on Knob Hill. And then he thought to buy an old stone winery in Napa Valley to create a, a state winery. And he asked me and a few other label designers to go out on his yacht and, and come up with a design, which I did. And I was I had my cowboy boots on and my sport coat, and these guys come on, on the boat with their three-piece suits and their Vanna Whites. And so they, him and, and Beth chose my design. As, and so that's how, it, that's how it was born. And then um, I developed that label, the Farniente Chardonnay label for the 1979 vintage. That was my first uh, label 40 years ago. And how many how many uh, labels have you done over the years, and is this still an active part of your work? Well, I did uh, all five of the Farniente family wines. During that period, other people saw the work that I was doing. It was word of mouth, and, and uh, Gil allowed me to put my name on the back of the label, and I had never done a label before, so I gave him a screaming deal. And so he helped me out and prom promoted me. So people would contact me over the years. And so I've done probably 25 to 50 labels. You know, when you're thinking about a design for a wine label, how is that different than other forms of illustration for you? I mean, what, what's your, do you approach it differently? Do you approach it the same? I mean, I mean are you thinking about the bottle when you design the label? I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I'd approach it just like I did my glasswork, where I would get to know the people and then I'd listen to their dream. I asked them, okay, what do you want? What, how do you want to be perceived? What do you want people to think when they look at the label, when they pick up your bottle? And bottle, uh, size, shape, weight, all of that um, was important because the image, when you're walking down a, uh, in the liquor store or whatever and you're looking at wine labels um, and you don't know the wine, um, you want the label to pop out. 
And that's basically what Gil wanted. He goes, look, I'm from Oklahoma. No one's going to know me. And uh, they're not going to know the wines. But I want to come across as a super high-end estate winery in Napa Valley. So that's how in this, the first Varniente label has sort of that stained glass look. And the gold bars, like um, the lead work, if you will, in a window. And in the capture, I tried to capture the view of the of the vineyard and the building was a, a pen and ink drawing, and then the four color artwork around with the gold labels with the grapes climbing up the the the, the bars, sort of that created that stained glass look. And so that's basically I, I approach all the work commission work that I do the same way: get to know the client, get to know what they like, and and try to interpret their vision through my hands. What are the actual tools that you use? You mentioned pen and ink. Yeah, what, what other media do you use when you sit down to work on this? Well, uh, that's the funny thing, too, especially in today's world. I'm old school, man. I do, I do everything by hand. It's pen and ink. It's color pencils. It's watercolor. And I usually draw the original about 200% the size. So a three-and-a-half or four-inch label is on an 8 by 10 or 8 by 12 piece of paper. And then I would do the detail on that. And then when it gets reduced down, the detail gets sharper, um, the the uh, process of, of doing that. And interestingly enough, the Gordon Graphics in Marin County, where I was living, uh, were the only printers that took on this job. And the machines back in those days, it was offset litho, were not designed to do multiple usage. Like there's gold bars, there was embossing, there was four color, there was black line. And then there was a die cut, the shape of the label, because all labels were pretty much rectangular or square prior to what I was doing, which is another approach that really changed wine label design. So I, I'm old school. I do everything by hand. I did all the color separations by hand. I put my own registration marks on the drawings. And so by the time I had a piece ready for the printer, it'd be on six different pieces of paper. And uh, the original sketch was the concept. And then when you broke it down to actually producing the artwork for the label, it was hand-drawn individual pieces of paper that was registration marks so that you put, you put it over a light box and you could stack all these drawings up and they would be registered. Presses in those days were not designed to do all that. So it was the most elaborate label ever produced at that time. It went through the press seven different times to create the Farniente label. Nowadays, technology has sort of sped up and caught up to where you can gold emboss, uh, you can gold foil and emboss. It, it goes to the press maybe twice now instead of seven times. You know, technology had not really reached what I had done at the time, which isn't the first time that's happened, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> I'm interested in this because my studio is right across the street from Charles Schultz Museum. And the very first time I went in there and they had, you know, the original drawings of the strips up on the wall and they rotate them all the time. It's actually really cool. I was surprised by how big they were, you know, the, the daily strips and the Sunday strips both. And he was doing exactly what you're talking about. He, he would hand draw them, you know, oversized and then they would reduce down. And it just makes such perfect sense. And it also seems like it would be easier for the artist to really get in there and do what he or she wants to do, right? Yeah, and that's exactly why you do it, because you can draw detail at a larger scale, and then once it's reduced, it becomes even more detailed, 
which makes it even more attractive. You know, when you see the final product, you, you know, you go look at that. I mean, I look at things and go, how the hell they do that? And you look at the drawing once it's label size and you go, how do you, how do you make that so small? <laughs> and it's the attraction too. I mean, it draws you in. It's, um, it's, it's, it's sort of a visual technique that just draws you closer to the image and you want to hold it in your hand. You want to look at it closer. And now we're going to go to your, your other side because this is something when I was kind of studying your, your arc that I loved. Let's talk about baseball because you like baseball, don't you? Yeah, I do. I played ever since I was six years old and I was, I was good at it. And uh, I was looked at, I got an invitation to go to try out with the Mets out of high school as a catcher. And, but I'd already started my business in high school. I was teaching adult education classes by the time I was a senior and living on my own. So I declined from baseball saying, well, I'll just take a couple of years off. Well, you can't do that if you're going to, uh, and I, I had a trouble hitting the curveball back then. And I was, you know, a skinny kid, but I, I love the game and I love playing. So I continued to play softball and then eventually got into the men's senior hardball league back in the eighties. One day I'm in my studio, this is 1990, I'm in my studio and gallery in San Rafael, and I'm painting on these stone paintings, which were being exhibited in Santa Fe and Sedona and, and kind of the Southwest, they were river rock paintings. And this older gentleman walks in the studio and it says, are you Tom Rodriguez? And I said, yeah, how can I help you? And he says, I met a guy in a laundromat in Phoenix and he told me to come see you. And I'm saying, well, who's the guy? And he says, well, I didn't catch his name, but he told me you were a baseball fan. I said, yes, I am. So he reached his hand out to shake my hand. He says, my name is Bob Wood. I'm Smokey Joe Wood's son. And the hair on my arm stood up. And I was like, are you kidding me, man? I mean, Smokey Joe Wood pitched against Christy Matthewson in the famous World Series game that went into extra innings. He was the fastball hurler for the Boston Red Sox at the time. And he says, I got my, some of my dad's memorabilia. Would you be interested in, in taking a look at it? And I said, sure. So he went out to his car and brought these two old leather suitcases in. And we put them out on the table and we started going through. We spent a couple hours going through photographs. And he had a uh, 1934 Yankee team ball with Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth signed on it. And a Little League bat he used, a Babe Ruth Little League bat. And a bunch of black and white photographs from his dad's collection and old gloves and stuff. And uh, so I bought some of his pictures. I bought the Yankee team ball, his little league bat. And then one night I uh, grabbed a bottle of wine, went down to my studio and I uh, painted the first painting. It's called the inspiration. It's a picture of Babe Ruth swinging the bat when he was a rookie for the Red Sox. And it's one of the first and only paintings I've ever painted from beginning to end. And I was just so inspired by it in the same night, by the way. I was so inspired by it that I went home and I had a dream. I saw a bunch of paintings on, on the field of Candlestick and life-size paintings of all these players. And so that started the, the dream of doing an exhibit at a Major League Baseball park. It took three years, a lot of money, and a lot of negotiation with Major League Baseball, San Francisco Giants, and the city of San Francisco to allow something like that to happen because no one had ever, no artist had ever rented a, a stadium to uh, do a art exhibit. I mean, there'd been rock, rock and roll bands come to stadiums, but nothing like this. And so it was the first of its kind. It was in 1993, uh, July 11th, 1993. So I hired actors who looked like the players and dressed them in uniforms from uh, Eight Men Out and Field of Dreams from the movies. And and uh, actually, Shamar Moore was one of my one of my uh, players who is now I think he's on the SWAT show on TV. 
But anyway, it was really fun. It was an all-day event. People were able to walk out on the field. There was uh, We covered all the modern-day signs of a candlestick. The Coca-Cola and Marlboro were all covered with black fabric. And through the sound system, we pumped out music from the 40s and and radio clips, you know, Bobby Thompson's home run, you know, shot heard around the world. And different periods of time during the from the early baseball up until the 60s. And the images I painted were... Um, Negro League players, early uh, Christy Matheson, Smokey Joe Wood, Babe Ruth, Luke Derrick, uh, and then up until and then the Giants, Willie McCovey, Willie Mays, uh, Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell from the Negro Leagues, and it was 30 paintings in the series. And uh, the idea was to put this show on the road because baseball was struggling at that time, and but my timing was off by one year because. Uh, at the end of the, I had, was negotiated with Yankee Stadium, Wrigley Field, and Camden Yards, and, and Fenway, the older ballparks, to get the show to sh- hit the road. You know, it would be a road show. Sports Illustrated came out and did a, uh, a spread on it in ESPN. It was around the same time Ken Burns was doing his baseball show, uh, his baseball series. And um, but the sad part was that it, uh, the, the um, baseball went on strike, first time ever. Uh, in the 94 season. And so nobody wanted to talk to me <laughs> because people walked away from baseball. Oh my gosh. Been baseball fans <laughs> their whole life said, you know, they were upset that these spoiled brats were striking and, and, uh, we didn't have a World Series that year, first time ever. You know, it, it just killed the show. And we're talking about, yeah, Legends at the Stick, yeah. Right, Legends at the Stick, yeah. And it was a play on words, you know, Stick being the bat and also Candlestick Park. Now, all these years later, what, about 15, 16 years later, are you glad you did it? Are you glad you did it? Uh, or, you know, what, what's your feeling now, all these years later, about this great investment of artistic energy? Well, <laughs> now that I own a winery, I wish I had the money back. But... Um, it was an incredible thing and, and proud of what I did. Timing of it all was, was just bad. I also went through a divorce that same time. So it was really emotionally difficult for me at the time. You know, I look back on it and I actually, I still display some of the paintings I have left in the, in the winery, in the tasting room, published a book on the series. And so I, I still, you know, sell that stuff through my tasting room and, and through other outlets and, so it, you know, the money has trickled back. I, you know, I lost a lot of money on it, but the the effect. It was more about doing it than the financial aspect. I, money never motivated me in my career. It's been more of a a passion. And if I learned a long time ago when I was a kid that if you live your passions, people throw money at you. You know, you'll get enough to survive. And and that's what it was for me. I don't regret it. I have a painting in the Hall of Fame forever. And how many artists can say that? The painting in the Hall of Fame is a portrait of Cool Papa Bell, who was a Negro League star. He was one of the fastest base runners in in the game at the time. He could run the bases in 11 seconds. And uh, even though Mickey Mantle claimed he could run in 11 seconds too, but I think Cool Papa Bell set the record on that. My last question for you is, how do you view setbacks or, or what we call you know failures as an artist, I, you, we have a number of themes in the show. Reinvention is one of them. Uh, dealing with setbacks is another one because they're, you know, unavoidable. What is your take on what we call uh, as a setback uh, in terms of your art? Well, that's a good, really good question because it's all about attitude, right? And for me, and I've got this personal philosophy that failure is not an option. So 
when I come to something like what happened in Legends of the Stick, which actually parallels the game of baseball, which is why I love baseball so much, because baseball is a game that teaches you to be a humble loser. Because if you, you, know, you strike out seven out of 10 times you, and you get a hit three out of 10, that's Hall of Fame batting average. If you have a 300 lifetime batting average, you can make the Hall of Fame. So, and that's life. You don't get up and hit a home run every day. Occasionally you get a hit. You know, so it's it was just kind of an attitude that I had that, OK, I'll just pick myself up and move on to something else and um, and apply the same amount of passion, which I've done here as a winemaker. Now, this is my 19th season as a winemaker in Mendocino County. And uh, I think it's it's you can't let failure or incompletion of a dream, so to speak, bring you down. You just go, okay, I learned here. Life's full of lessons. My dad taught me when I was a kid that you wake up every day with a set of problems and it's your life is how you deal with your problems. You know, if you don't deal with them, then you're not so successful. If you deal with them, then you're successful. So money never motivated me for success. It was more about accomplishing a dream or or a goal. Passion is, is, is key. I talk to young people all the time in the tasting room and I ask them what their passion is. You know, they don't know. And even older people too, it's, they don't know, you know, you live your whole life and you retire, what are you going to do? I'm not sure. Well, find your passion, find your passion when you're young. And if you uh, dive into it, you'll never work a day in your life because you love what you do. And they say, well, what's passion? It's a passion is when you're doing something and, and you've, you know, you start in the morning and then all of a sudden it's dark outside and you forgot to eat lunch and you forgot what time it is and you, you forgot what day it is. That's passion when you can completely lose yourself in what you're doing. That's that's the perfect ending, Tom, I have to tell you. <laughs> More about your winery. My brand is Art Divino, A-R-T-E-V-I-N-O. And every label I have has a different painting from my vineyard series on it. On each uh, varietal, there's about 15 different wines that I make. You know, it's still basically the same thing I've been doing, just change the medium. You know, I'm, I'm painting with grape juice now. <laughs> and I put it in a bottle. <laughs> A big thanks to Tom for joining us this week, and hats off to Kelly Richards, our talent producer, for making the connection. You can see Tom's work by visiting www.rodricastudio.com, spelled R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-S, studio, all one word. And you can visit Tom and see some of his originals at the Maple Creek Winery Tasting Room on Highway 128, in Yorkville, California. And that's at www.maplecreekwine.com. I'll be back next time with another artist and the thoughts behind their creation. Until then, this is Derek Story, the nimble photographer, wishing you great success in all your endeavors. This podcast is made possible by select members of Patreon. You can learn more and pledge your support for the digital story and the nimble photographer by visiting www.patreon.com slash the digital story. That's www.patreon.com slash the digital story.